service. Hey, I'm Jake Brennan, and I want to tell you about Disgraceland, the award-winning music and true crime podcast that I host. Disgraceland tells the stories of musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly. Fleetwood Mac, Nipsey Hussle, Cardi B, Ozzy Osbourne, Taylor Swift, Tupac, The Beatles, Amy Winehouse, Jay-Z, The Grateful Dead, and so many more. This is not the music history you've heard before. This is an uncensored, immersive look at the lives of musical icons as seen through the crimes they've committed or that have been perpetrated against them. Did Jerry Lee Lewis murder his fifth wife? What really happened to Sam Cooke in that seedy motel at 3 a.m.? And how did the Rolling Stones wind up sleeping with the First Lady? Wait, what? New episodes of Disgraceland drop every Tuesday with bonus episodes released on Mondays and Thursdays. So get in, buckle up, and join me in Disgraceland. Available right now, wherever you get your podcasts. Rockerola. Badlands is a production of Double Elvis. But most of you know that cannot be true. For every Christmas you've seen what I do. And now you not only know just what I do, but you hear The stories about Robert Downey Jr. are insane. He began a 30-year relationship with drugs at just eight years old. He was busted, stark naked, and hallucinating while driving down Sunset Boulevard. Soon after, he was arrested again, this time for speeding on the PCH with illicit drugs and a concealed weapon. He routinely escaped from rehab facilities within days of being checked in. He did time in both an L.A. County jail and a California state prison for violating the terms of his parole. Then before and after he staged the greatest rebound in Hollywood history, Robert Downey Jr. made great films. Unlike that clip I played for you at the top of the show, that wasn't from a great film. That was a fair use sample from the Library of Congress of Harry E. Humphrey performing Santa Claus Hides in Your Phonograph. I played you that clip because I can't afford the rights to sample a clip from Robert Emmerich's Independence Day. And why would I play you that specific slice of it's the end of the world as we know it, cheese, could I afford it? Because that was the number one movie in America on July 16, 1996. And that was the day that Robert Downey Jr. was found passed out in a drug-induced haze and near death in a stranger's house in a little kid's bed. An event that incredibly wasn't even his wake-up call to straighten him out. On this episode, Naked Hallucinations, Illicit Drugs, Concealed Weapons, Hollywood Rebounds, and Robert Downey Jr. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands, Season 3, Hollywoodland. He was alone at the top, but he wasn't lonely. The air was rarefied at the top. From up there, you could gaze down into the valley or the city or the abyss that was the Pacific Ocean, depending on which particular home you were gazing down from. Maybe the ranch in the Pacific Palisades or 
the one in Rustic Canyon, or one of the two houses in Venice, or the Piste de Resistance in Malibu. All seven acres of reduced carbon footprint and farm homestead purchased above Zuma Beach. It was a long way down from up there. You could barely see the bottom. Not that Robert Downey Jr. would ever want to see the bottom again. He had picked himself up and scaled back up and never looked back. It was 2015. Robert Downey Jr. stood triumphantly at the top all on his own. $80 million a year. That's what he was pulling down for three years running. No other actor in Hollywood could touch him. He was undisputed. His salary was unprecedented. He was at the center of a renaissance in Hollywood, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, three movies deep into the billions-grossing Iron Man saga. His character, Tony Stark, the asshole-turned-Avenger with a heart-of-arc reactor gold, would lead the charge over multiple films in the 2010s that would make history and shitloads of money. If Downey could see into the future, he would see that he wasn't even at the apex of the upper crust yet. He was still in ascent, and there were still billions to be made in an industry to reinvent. And when he went to bed that night, he never slept that good. The hush of the salty breeze of the Pacific, a white noise of nothing, calm, serene, the kind of sound that could only be heard at the top. The penlight shining directly into his eye stung like a needle. Sir, a jagged needle, jagged needle on fire. Sir, his ears rang. A hand repeatedly slapped the side of his face. He tried to lift his head, but the room was spinning so violently he couldn't tell which way was up. He didn't know that he was awake, courtesy of a shot of Narcan that the paramedics had given him just moments before, when he was unconsciously teetering on the verge of death. Now he tasted life, and it tasted like shit. His mouth was rotten, his head was pounding, he was gonna puke. And now, this goddamn pen light. Sir, I'm gonna need you to stand up and try to walk with me. One of the paramedics was trying to pull him out of the bed. It wasn't his bed. He looked around the room, and it wasn't his room either. Where the fuck was he? When the fuck was he? The paramedic attempted to reassure him by stating that it was July 16th, 1996. They were in Malibu, yes, but no, this was not his house. As he was sat upright in bed with help from the paramedics, he saw her on the other side of the room, the owner of the house, a mom, the mom of the 11-year-old kid whose bed he had used as a landing pad for his shaky descent. He thought he recognized her, and she recognized him all right her Oscar-nominated neighbor from 17 houses up the road, Robert Downey Jr., had famously lost that Oscar for his portrayal of Charlie Chaplin to Al Pacino's overacted hooahs. And now, three years later, Downey was riding out that losing streak in a stranger's bed. He'd lost his sense of direction, and he'd lost his way around Broad Beach Road. He'd lost his fucking mind. He'd also lost the confidence of nearly everyone in Hollywood. He was 31 years old. He'd always been one to live on the edge. He was a rebel, a cynic, the child of one of cinema's counterculture figureheads. And those qualities shone bright in every performance he gave. His personal life was as dosed in vice and neon as his character Julian in the prophetic Less Than Zero, but unlike Julian, Downey had been able to avoid that inevitable descent to the bottom, at least for a while. The 90s had been rough, and he was addicted to the thrill of hard drugs. 
He bounced between three talent agencies in the previous year alone, and if that wasn't bad enough, he'd been found passed out and nearly dead in his neighbor's bed. He was found mere hours after he was formally charged with coke and heroin. That charge was related to an incident a few weeks earlier. Out on the PCH, cars moved faster out there than anywhere else in greater LA. The curves were more dramatic, and so were the sunsets. On Hollywood Boulevard, you cruised. On the PCH, you flew. The windows of the Ford F-150 were rolled down. Robert Downey Jr. was alone. He'd already dropped the girl off at her place, and she wanted to go home. She scoffed at him for getting high. The nerve. After, he literally saved her life the night before at dinner when she choked on a fishbone. It was the first time he'd performed the Heimlich on someone and worked like a charm. But now she was a bad luck charm, harshing his mellow. This was how she thanked him? He didn't need any more bad luck than he already had. After he dropped her off, he decided to gun it back home to Malibu. He was high, but he felt all right. He was good high, not bad high. He wasn't seeing things. He felt invincible enough. And this stretch of the PCH was a straight shot. Odds were he could make it home without incident. He passed through a set of traffic lights. They were green and he was in the clear. And then the other lights sprung up behind him, blues. And Downey looked in the rearview mirror and saw a mix of the receded green traffic lights and the cops' blue lights. The bright blend of color shocked the dark night sky. What the fuck was that color? Cyan? It wasn't just the coke and the junk he had to worry about. It was also the 357 Magnum on the passenger seat. The thing was unloaded, but still, it wasn't a good look. Downey's dealer's boyfriend bailed him out. Ten grand in small bills. At home in Malibu, he dug through the garbage can for the rest of the shit. He had a hunch it was in there. The rock he found was so clear you could look through it and see Catalina Island on the other side. It was a diamond in the rough, sparkling like a star amongst the banana peels and coffee grinds. Whatever the hell it was, he cooked it up, smoked it, and the next thing he knew, he was being yanked from some kid's bed up the road in Malibu. Downey's eyes slowly began to focus as he was raised out of the bed by the paramedics. The mother was staring at him. She shielded the eyes of her own small children. They looked afraid, but the look on the mother's face was different. It was a look that had once been feared just moments ago, but now it was a look of pity. She pitied him, this pathetic junkie in his t-shirt and boxers passed out in her house. His jeans were neatly folded over a nearby chair. Somehow that was even more pitiful, that he hadn't even noticed he was most definitely in the wrong house. The mother had the look of fear in her eyes after she initially climbed down the circular staircase, some 70 steps in all, all the way down to the bottom of the house where they were now, thinking her son was playing a game hide-and-seek maybe, and then when she pulled back the bedsheets to find not her son but an adult male, white crusty foam at the corners of his mouth, his eyes surrounded by deep purple and blue indents. He looked like a dead man. She screamed, the kids came running, and she called 911. Just once, Downey thought. Just once I'd like to wake up and know where the hell I am. That would be a nice change of pace. But this was his pace now. Waking up in the Malibu home of a five-person family whose names he did not know, surrounded by paramedics and cops. It was just another day in the life of Robert Downey Jr. And it was lonely as hell. 
counterculture was the culture, your culture. Only you didn't call it that. Your dad didn't give it a name, so you didn't either. It was just life. It was a better life than the life the other half lived. Those other people bought the same old garbage they were being sold all the time. Spend your money here and wear this, not that. Think this way, vote for that guy. And you know what? Fuck that guy and fuck conformity. When they told you how to live and what rules to follow, that's when you dug in deeper. That's when you did the opposite of what you were being told to do. Always the opposite. But no one ever told you that by not conforming with the masses, you were simply conforming under a different name. It was the B-side, the alternate take. It was still an overture to fitting in, to finding your place, your tribe, your thing. And the thesis was right there, in the old man's magnum opus, Putney Swope. Robert Downey Sr.'s 1969 satirical film skewered the world of Madison Avenue and its depraved corporate culture. It would take years, decades even, before the demarcation between cultural camps was erased and Putney Swope would find a forever home in the Library of Congress's National Film Registry. But back in 1969, Downey Sr. and his so-called cinematic counterculture were not hailed by the establishment. Far from it. His movies aimed to motherfuck the establishment, and they were low-budget, confrontational, super weird. Downey Sr.'s next film, 1970's Pound, featured people as animals waiting to be euthanized, for Christ's sakes. It was quite literally the antithesis of Love Story, the Ally McGraw, Ryan O'Neill tearjerker that happened to be that year's highest-grossing film. Pound was notable for the acting debut of Robert Downey Sr.'s only son, who, at five years old, was introduced to his father's off-kilter world at an impressionable age. Cinema wasn't the only thing the counterculture was experimenting with, which meant that Robert Downey Jr. cultivated a palette for more than just odd movies. As young as eight years old, he was smoking grass with his father. Some kids threw the pigskin around with the old man, the Downies, father and son, passed a joint. Fathers shouldn't smoke grass with their sons, and that was squares talking. And they could shove their square talk right up their square tight asses. To Downey Sr., it was a shared experience, a bond. As Robert Downey Jr. would explain later, when my dad and I would do drugs together, it was like him expressing his love for me in the only way he knew how. And the only way Robert Downey Jr. knew how to be was the way his dad taught him to be. You fit into the puzzle of adolescence by not fitting in. That you weren't like everyone else. Rules were meant to be broken. So at Santa Monica High School, Robert Downey Jr. would show up late to scale the fence to get in. And when he inevitably got bored, he scaled the fence in reverse and let himself out on his own recognizance. He didn't graduate high school, but he did graduate from escaping high school to escaping other facilities when he became an adult. That came later, though. First, he escaped L.A. for New York, where he began acting in earnest, out from his father's countercultural shadow. He wanted to find his own scene. He landed early roles in John Hughes' Weird Science and Back to School alongside Rodney Dangerfield. He existed as a Brat Pack adjacent and alternate. Even though he appeared in one of John Hughes' earliest movies, 
He was never officially part of the core group of the American pop new wave actors like Emilio Estevez, Anthony Michael Hall, Andrew McCarthy, Rob Lowe, Molly Ringwald, and Ali Sheedy. He wasn't like the rest of them. He was different. But Robert Downey Jr. wound up back in L.A. with his girlfriend, the actress Sarah Jessica Parker. It was 1985, and Downey was 20 years old. The couple shared a pink house that had once been owned by Charlie Chaplin. A few years later, the fact that Downey had lived in Chaplin's house would ring out not simply as a strange coincidence, but as a harbinger for what was to come. Downey didn't know it at the time, but he was already preparing for that role for the role that would set him apart once and for all from the bubblegummy brat pack and earn him his first Academy Award nomination. Even Chaplin's daughter would one day say that Downey's performance gave her a very, very weird feeling. Downey learned Chaplin by osmosis. It was art imitating life. But unfortunately for Downey, by the time he got around to playing Chaplin in the early 90s, life was already busy imitating art. Before Less Than Zero, the less than perfect 1987 movie based on the excellent Bret Easton Ellis novel in which Downey played a spoiled rich kid who descends into crippling cocaine addiction and self-destruction, drugs for Downey were an after-work indulgence, a weekend treat. Drugs were a constant, yes, but he wasn't using them constantly. And that all changed with Less Than Zero. Downey played the part of Julian, his skin clammy and sweaty, his eyes bugging out, his lips blue around the edges. Julian always found the bottom underneath the bottom. Each scene, Julian dug himself into a deeper hole, and so did Downey. Downey became Julian. Downey called the role the ghost of Christmas future, and it came to haunt him, and it never left. Neither did Sarah Jessica, at least at first. She would eventually grow tired of her boyfriend's cocaine habit, and at the end of the 1980s, however, many saw her as a rare stabilizing force in Downey's life. Without her, Robert Downey Sr. told People Magazine, Robert would go 100 miles an hour into a brick wall. His foot sank into the gas pedal. The Porsche purred like a tiger, and the tires hugged the asphalt. Sunset Boulevard was a straight shot, a runway straight to darkness, no end in sight, just the eternity of nighttime. Palm trees towered high above on either side of the road, illuminated by the pastel glow of neon. It was 1996, and Sarah Jessica was long gone. So was Robert Downey Jr.'s wife, Deborah Falconer, whom he had married after a six-week courtship a few years earlier. She took their two-year-old with her. It was the same story. They all left because of the drugs. Same story, different drugs. First, it had been cocaine, and now it was crack, heroin. One thing led to another thing, and sometimes it led to a stint in rehab. Rehab was never anything more than a rest stop, though. Robert Downey Jr. blew through a yellow light and hung his arm out the driver's side window. He probably should have expected that his wife would leave him, but he didn't expect Sean Penn and Dennis Quaid knocking on his door so loud one morning that he thought the thing would splinter into pieces and they dragged his junky ass out of the house and put him on a private jet. Destination, Tucson, another rehab facility, another rest stop, another barrel of conformis. Not even three days later, he was gone. Jumped the fence just like he used to jump the fence back at high school. And he called his accountant. He needed a plane ticket back to LA, sooner the better. And as soon as he sat in his seat, he started drinking. 
non-stop nips of whatever the stewardess would bring him for the entire 90-minute flight. And now he was back in his Porsche on the strip. And another thing, he was buck fucking naked. Each time he stepped on the gas pedal, he felt the car vibrate in his balls and he was high as shit, some grade A or class A high on top of the booze buzz he was rocking from the flight. And at this point, he didn't know if he was driving the Porsche or if the Porsche was driving him. And he had nothing, literally nothing, no clothes on his back, drugs and alcohol slowly oozing from his pores. And he needed to score now. And he had it down to a science out the door, down the road, to his dealer and back again, sky high in 45 minutes. He was like the million dollar man, but not tonight. And it was all the rats fault, the fucking rats. And they were crawling all through the car and they were huge, shitting on the leather interior. They were under his bare feet. And they were under the gas pedal, the brake. He stepped on the pedals and heard their high pitched rodent squeal, dirty fucking animals. He took his hand off the wheel and grabbed one by the tail and threw it out the window. Grabbed another right off the dash. It wiggled between his fingers. He flung it out on the sunset as the Porsche made its dramatic swerve towards oncoming traffic. When the LAPD eventually caught up to him, naked, high, and throwing imaginary rodents out of his car, Robert Downey Jr. wasn't sure how long he'd been driving. You were always driving in LA. Some nights you had a destination, and other nights you didn't. You just drove to drive. So which was it, the cops wanted to know. Did he have a destination? It was a rhetorical question. They knew where he was headed next. Court, then rehab. And if he didn't comply with that, he'd be headed to prison. Downey's former manager, Lori Rodkin, whom Downey had fired after she forced him into one of his many early rehab stints, had another destination in mind. Every day I look in the newspaper, she said in 1996. And I think I'm going to read Robert's obituary. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. It was Thanksgiving weekend in the year 2000 when the Palm Springs Police Department received the anonymous call. Uh, yeah, I'd just like to let you know that in room 311 of the Merv Griffin Resort, there's a man that is doing an ounce of cocaine with a couple of guns and is pretty upset. It would be a Thanksgiving weekend to remember, but for all the wrong reasons. Palm Springs was meant to be relaxing, a getaway spot for LA's rich and frazzled to unwind. The rose gardens, the citrus orchard, all the flowers surrounding the Merv Griffin Resort Hotel and Spa were all part of an intoxicating package of relaxation. Robert Downey Jr. wasn't relaxed. He was, however, definitely intoxicated. Downey was wired inside room 311. He couldn't remember when he slept last. Some locals had been down to party, and they did coke, crack, mellowed it out with volume, and then the party ended, and now Downey was alone again. And he heard the banging on the door of his room. He looked around at the ornate French decoration, 600 bucks a night. Couldn't afford such luxury given the current state of his financial affairs, but fuck it. The knocking came louder now, and the voices on the other side of the door were announcing themselves. Palm Springs' finest. Downey looked at the half-empty tissue box next to his bed. It was a cute place for a stash, but you can't really call it a stash when it's spilling out of its hiding place, can you? 
that he knew he definitely couldn't afford the consequences of being caught with contraband like this. It had only been four months since he was released from the pen. L.A. County Jail had been his first stop, and in some ways it had been the worst. What happened on the inside stayed on the inside. But the post-traumatic stress, and that didn't stay anywhere. It was always with you. That thing with those three other motherfuckers on the inside, those fists found places on his face that he'd never felt before. He tasted the blood after the first blow to his head. He thought his knuckles had shattered after his hand met the unforgiving muscle of a fellow inmate. And they put him in solitary for that shit. He had to have facial reconstruction surgery to fix what was now a very fucked up face. And the reason he wound up in L.A. County Jail in the first place was because he had failed one of his court-mandated piss tests. And that mandate, of course, came on the heels of his string of arrests in 1996. Driving down Sunset Boulevard naked and hallucinating, racing down the PCH with illegal drugs and an unloaded 357, passing out in a neighbor's house. At one point, he had stood before the same judge three separate times in the course of one week. They made him do rehab again, and then made him piss into a cup to prove he was clean. And it's not that he had failed the test, he just didn't do it, which was equal to failing it in the court's eyes. So the judge made good on an earlier threat. If Downey wasn't going to conform to the demands of the court, then it was off to jail with him. Six months on the inside. Three years later, Downey missed another piss test. He was in a bad way, and he was still working, however. Somehow, Hollywood hadn't cast him out as an unreliable leper quite yet. He shot Wonder Boys for director Curtis Hansen at the end of the century. No one could inhabit the character of a literary agent with the hots for his client's student quite like Downey could. But his private life was shit and not very private. He was still separated from his wife and child. A messy divorce was imminent. His legal bills were piling up. He lost his house and his car, and now he once again lost his freedom. The second missed piss test meant not jail time, but prison time. It's like I've got a shotgun in my mouth with my finger on the trigger, Downey told the judge, and I like the taste of gunmetal. He was sentenced to three years at the California State Prison in Corcoran, the one in the same prison where none other than Charles fucking Manson called home. Downey shared a cell with five other guys, and the state tried to break him, make him fit in. Up every day at 6 a.m., scrubbing dirty dishes in the kitchen, four hours of drug counseling every day, and he barely served a year, even though it felt like three. Hollywood was waiting with yet another second chance when Robert Downey Jr. walked out of the prison's front door. He got the Ally McBeal gig that same day. 500 grand for eight episodes in which he played Callista Flockhart's love interest on the popular Fox show. He was great for ratings. He would even go on to win a Golden Globe for Best Supporting Actor in a television series the next year, 2001. First, he had the Palm Springs Police Department to worry about. And the knocking on his door at the Merv Griffin Resort Hotel continued. Downey was running on empty, and there was nowhere to run. He was 35, to hell with running. He politely let the cops inside. They didn't find any weapons, as the anonymous caller had claimed, but they did find plenty of drugs. Methamphetamine hidden inside that half-empty tissue box near the bed. Four grams of heavily cut cocaine. 16 Valium pills. 
Danny looked at the cops through strung out up all night eyes. Don't do this to me, he said. You're going to ruin my life. And they did it. And his life was ruined. Within days, his career was dead in the water. He was dropped from Ally McBeal. He was axed from America's Sweethearts, an upcoming movie he was set to co-star in with Julia Roberts and Catherine Zeta-Jones. Ditto for his shot to play Hamlet live on stage in a production directed by Mel Gibson, who was still a few years away from his own career debilitating controversy. By 2003, Robert Downey Jr. was uninsurable. Most studios wouldn't even consider him for a role, no matter how minor. It didn't matter that he'd recently won a Golden Globe or that he was an Oscar-nominated actor with a singular style. The only reason producer Joel Silver and Warner Brothers agreed to cast him in the Halle Berry vehicle Gothica that year was because he put up his entire salary to cover his insurance. Gothica didn't revive Robert Downey Jr.'s career, nor is it one of the better movies he's been in. But being a part of that movie's production may have saved his life. It was on set that he met Susan Levin, one of the film's producers who was tasked with the unenviable job of wrangling Robert Downey Jr. Susan was a key player for Silver Pictures, Joel Silver's production company. So she had experience working with difficult Hollywood types. She didn't find the task of keeping Downey in line particularly challenging. Downey seemed to have his shit together. He looked clean, he was lucid. And when he asked Susan to dinner, the trademark Downey charm was turned on bright. Unlike Downey, Susan didn't party. She was her high school valedictorian. Downey didn't even make it to his graduation. And she graduated summa cum laude from USC film school. She was as anchored as Downey was rudderless. Nevertheless, she had to admit that she was interested, as was he. And once she got to know him, it became obvious that he hadn't thrown it all away yet. The addiction, the vice, it was still there. She could see it behind his eyes and hear it in his voice. It was a stubborn square peg in a sea of round holes. And he wasn't going to do what anyone else told him to do. And that was what he had been telling himself for years. But what was he actually afraid of? that he would never again experience a thrill on par with driving in the nude down Sunset Boulevard, higher than the Santa Ana winds? That settling down was too pedestrian a destiny for a child of the counterculture? It was quickly becoming clear that Robert Downey Jr.'s destiny looked a lot different than he had imagined. But it wasn't a compromise. He wasn't settling. He wasn't leveling up. He was manifesting something that had never been seen before in Hollywood a rebound of heroic proportions. With Susan, he could be healthier, happier, and more successful than ever before. But being with Susan came with a caveat. He had to ditch the drugs, all of them. Every last bag of powder, every rock, every pill, nothing could be left hiding behind his eyes or in his voice. Susan's ultimatum gave him purpose, hope, lit a fire under his ass to do better, be better. Downey knew he could do it. But not everyone saw him the way Susan Levin saw him. And there were some who would look a clean and sober Robert Downey Jr. in the eyes and only see one thing, an unreliable fuck-up who only went in one direction. Down.
The burger tasted rotten, each bite worse than the last. Some bottom of the barrel beef patty bullshit. Or maybe, maybe the burger wasn't actually the problem. Maybe he was the problem. The burger tasted the way his head felt when he was Narcaned back to life in the stranger's house in Malibu. Tasted like a hallucinatory cruise in the buff on sunset. Like strung out loneliness in a hotel room in Palm Springs. He didn't want to remember any of those things, let alone taste them. He thought of Susan. He thought of a future as a Hollywood pariah, begging for scraps and begging for a paycheck. He knew what he had to do. It was 2003, around Independence Day. A warm breeze blew in off the Pacific Ocean. The Burger King on the PCH wasn't exactly a destination restaurant. More like a place you happen upon. You're hungry, you're tired, you're desperate. And the yellow, blue, and red sign called out to the famished and the weary. It was convenience incarnate. For Robert Downey Jr., it was as good a spot as anywhere. He left the half-eaten burger on the tray, walked back to his car. He opened the door and searched the interior for any drug he could get his hands on. He looked in the glove box, cup holders, under the seats, the trunk. It didn't matter what he was grabbing. Could have been coke, speed, crack, junk. If it was a pill or a powder or a rock, he scooped it up in his hands until his car was so clean it would pass even the strongest schnoz on the canine team. His arms full of drugs, he walked to the edge of the ocean, the Burger King at his back, and tossed them all in. And that was it. And there was no turning back. He was determined, focused like he'd never been before. He had fallen in love and then had an epiphany at a Burger King of all places. This was his chance, the last of his myriad second chances. This was the moment. He'd tell them all he was clean, show them all he was clean. He had learned from his mistakes. He would put his rocky past behind him. It was all up from here, but he'd never touch the bottom again. Robert Downey Jr. carried that positive momentum with him over the next few years. He and Susan married, and they became working partners when they founded their own production company called Team Downey. The good roles began to trickle in again. Downey played crook-turned-aspiring actor Harry Lockhart in Shane Black's Kiss Kiss Bang Bang and journalist Paul Avery in David Fincher's Zodiac. And then, Downey got the opportunity of a lifetime. Director John Favreau wanted to cast him as Tony Stark, the industrialist multi-billionaire playboy turned Earth's mightiest hero in Iron Man. Downey was stoked. He was all in. He couldn't believe how quickly his luck had changed. In only a matter of years, he envisioned himself wearing Iron Man's suit on the big screen. And then, Marvel weighed in. Under no circumstances are we prepared to hire him for any price. Robert Downey Jr. remained too much of a gamble, too much baggage. The stigma of drug and alcohol abuse in prison time was unshakable. But John Favreau didn't back down. He fought tooth and nail. Robert Downey Jr. was Tony Stark. They both lived hedonistic lives before having near-death experiences that set them on a journey towards redemption and transformation. He couldn't just hand this role to a younger, unknown actor. They needed someone who had lived this shit. Someone who could see their life in the twists and the turns of the character's arc. 
When Marvel saw Robert Downey Jr.'s screen test and knew that Favreau was right, that this was the role that the now 40-year-old actor was born to play, that was the ultimate display of confidence. Confidence in the gamble. He had been accepted. He fit in. Now, more than ever, Robert Downey Jr. ought to be in pictures. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands. Badlands was created by me, Jake Brennan, and produced by Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at badlandspod.com. Subscribe, follow, like, rate, and review the Badlands podcast wherever you get your podcast because Badlands is available everywhere. If you love this show, tell someone, tell everyone, shout us out on social, spread the word, and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Double Elvis. Double Elvis.